As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson. And before we hear from today's guest, just a quick reminder to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles, and resources. And you can also register there for the chance to win a free book. And if you enjoy listening to Unapologetic, then please do consider rating and reviewing it on your podcast platform. But now for today's show. I am delighted to be joined today by Aaron Aurora, the Bishop of Kirkstall in the Diocese of Leeds and the Honorary Canon of Ripon Cathedral. Aaron has written the excellent book, Stick With Love, which is the Archbishop of York's Advent book for this year. Thank you so much for joining us today. Ruth, it's great to be with you. Aaron, what I love to do is to go back right to the beginning of people's lives. I don't know whether you would be happy to just share a little bit about your own experience of God growing up when you were younger. Happily. So um, I don't come from a Christian family. I was My uh, mother is Hindu. My dad was Sikh. He died when I was uh, fairly young, when I was about eight. And so... Um, Christianity was something that you kind of imbibed from school, perhaps, or from assemblies, but certainly nothing in the house, nothing in the home uh, about that. And so uh, my journey to faith, really, uh, there were a few pivotal moments, but uh, one of which, uh, one that I write about in the book, happened when I was um, a teenager, uh, about 13 years old. And we're growing up in Birmingham, that wonderful divine city of Birmingham. Uh, it was only natural uh, <laughs> that I would be an Aston Villa fan. Uh, you know, support my local football team. But one of the things about um, growing up uh, around football grounds in the late 70s, early 80s, is football grounds were the recruiting grounds back then for the far right, for the British National Party, the National Front. And so my mum probably quite wisely thought that football grounds weren't the best places for a chubby uh, 13-year-old Asian boy to be if she didn't want to end up picking uh, me up from accident and emergency. So I'd never been to Villa Park. Uh, I'd always wanted to go, uh, never had been. And then one day, walking home from school, I saw a poster outside my local church saying uh, that some guy called Billy Graham would be talking at Villa Park and they would be taking coaches to Villa Park, and those coaches would be free. And I spotted my opportunity 
to go and worship at Villa <laughs> To go Park, to the hallowed ground. To go to that place. And uh, I didn't know who or what Billy Graham was. But I badgered my mum and said, come on, come on, we've got to go, we've got to go. Me and me and she said, all right. And uh, we went to Villa Park. And that night when I got there, I heard Billy Graham talk about Jesus, about new life in Jesus, about sin, about forgiveness, about the triumph of the cross, uh, about the life, birth, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And at the end of that, he invited people if they wanted to make a commitment uh, to come and be prayed for. And I stood up, I looked at my mum and I said, can I go? And she said, you know, it's up to you. You do what you feel you must do. And so I went and I took a step onto that hallowed turf of Villa Park. I took a step onto that pitch <laughs> and I invited Jesus into my life. And I still remember getting home that night, just how buzzing I was, just full of the Spirit, speaking to God as if he was in the chair right next to me and just being full. And it was, uh, without that, the best decision I have ever made. But the funny thing, Ruth, was that uh, after that night, I didn't go to church for three years. And the reason wasn't, well. it wasn't that I didn't want to. It was that I didn't know how to. I didn't know anyone who's Christian. I didn't uh, know what you had to do when you went to church. I wouldn't know when to stand up, when to sit down. And I was a self-conscious teenage boy, you know. I wasn't going to go in a place that I didn't know. <laughs> so it wasn't uh, for three years until a friend of mine um, got released from uh, a young offenders institution, uh, those days known as Ballstall. And... Um, he was keen to do something on Friday nights uh, that was different to what he was doing before that had led him into trouble. <laughs> and his sisters went to a local Baptist church and uh, they ran a youth group. And he said, what are you doing on Friday night? I said, nothing. And he said, come on, let's go. And so we went and it was a classic 1980s uh, youth club, you know, empty hall, uh, really bad dartboard and dodgy pool table, uh, kicking a ball around, bad badminton court type thing. So I've been going there a few weeks, and the guy who ran it, who was just a normal member of his uh, local church who volunteered um, helping out kids and helping out doing something for young teens, he said, what are you doing on Sunday? And I said, nothing. He says, why not come out? And there began uh, my real journey of faith where I discovered church, discovered Christian community, learned about the Bible um, and took the decision, I think it was a couple of years later, then to be baptised. And uh, and I was baptised there and there became, um, that began the second leg of my journey, as it were. The first uh, leg began at Villa Park, the second leg uh, took part in Birmingham at Sevy Park Baptist Church. Wow. And I mean, I feel like you're presumably quite biased because you are the result of amazing stadium evangelism. But but lots of people today would perhaps say that stadium evangelism has maybe had its place. What would you say to that? Do you think there is still a place for stadium evangelism today? I think there's still a place for event evangelism. Uh, I, I think uh, okay. most people, and I think the research shows most people 
uh, come to be just through knowing someone else who is a Christian, through conversation, mm -hmm. uh, through those individual interaction. But I think event evangelism, and you can uh, talk about it in stadiums, you can talk about it as uh, something like an alpha course, coming here to uh, an alpha talk and inviting someone along to that. Um, things like, uh, I remember when I worked in Birmingham, uh, J. John ran just 10, you know, those wonder, <laughs> wonderful uh, evangelistic series of events. And I think it's a mixed ecology. You know, one of the things about um, just 10, say, uh, was that when we helped to run that back in Birmingham, one of the things they were really clear on was you have to prepare local churches as partners first so that if somebody came to faith, if somebody responded to what they learned, there was immediate follow-up. There was someone there. And that was very different to what happened to me at Billy Graham. Yeah. You see, and so uh, there's a mix in, in all of that. And I think one of the things about event follow-up, as it were, as you also see in Alpha, is that it strengthens the faith of uh, those Christians who are already there, seeking to explain their faith, seeking to accompany and disciple someone new, that if you do that, you grow in your own faith as you do it. So it's not simply about uh, proclaiming the word and uh, inviting through evangelism uh, new people to come into relationship with Jesus. It's also about, in the doing of that, uh, people themselves grow that uh, evangelism muscle. You know, they grow that uh, mm. discipleship practice where they can they learn to talk about their faith uh, confidently, but also reasonably in a way that invites engagement and uh, proclaims the word of the Lord. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, now, did you have any idea when you were kicking about in that massive hall with the with the dodgy toys? Did you have any idea when you came to faith there that that you would end up as a bishop in the Church of England? <laughs> well, no, I didn't even think I'd end up in the Church of England, to be honest. Uh, I mean, I didn't really know much about denominations. You come to faith, you come to faith. Uh, I remember at school not long afterwards being in uh, what was then known as General Studies, uh, I think the forerunner to PHSE and things like that. Um, someone, uh, one of the teachers asking if people, you know, had a faith, and I put my hand up. And he said, and what faith are you? And I says, I'm a Christian. And he says, what denomination are you? And I didn't know the answer because I was just <laughs> going to church. You know, I didn't know there was. So, um, but I loved uh, the Baptist church where I came to faith, where I um, was discipled, where uh, uh, I discovered what it is to be part of the Christian family and community. Uh, but sadly, um, uh I think my, my experience of Baptist churches, very much my own experience, was that when they work well, they're brilliant, and and you have such a we had such a wide range of ages, racial backgrounds, of different socio-economic backgrounds. It was brilliant, and when they work well, they're wonderful examples of family. But uh, my then own experience of a church split was really difficult. Uh, I found myself um, in uh, leadership for a while. Uh, as a deacon of that church, uh, but I became one of the casualties uh, when the devil gets it. And, uh, you know, a, a church, a really strong church, about 150, 160 people, ended up, I think, with a church of 30 people with marriages and many years uh, coming to an end. 
with really family relationships uh, shattered. And I left um, that church in my early 20s, really bruised and battered, um, still with a faith, but really hurt by Christian community. And so I needed to find somewhere where I could worship, where I could go, where um, I could go, no one would talk to me, uh, where I could go, worship God, walk out, be ignored, and we thank God for the church because <laughs> uh, I ended up, um, <laughs> uh, I ended up um, uh, worshiping at Birmingham Cathedral, um, which was near where I worked in Birmingham City Centre at that point, and um, uh, they pretty much just let me come and go. And I remember when I was ready to engage again with Christian community, I. Um, you know, said to one of the uh, vicars there as I was leaving, well, hi, I'm Aaron, and I've been coming here for a few months. He said, yes, we've noticed. And I said, I didn't really want to uh, talk to anyone. He says, yes, we noticed that too. Uh, and I said, but now I'm now I'm, I'm, I'm ready. And therein began um, really a journey uh, that really emphasised different aspects of the faith. I think... Um, Having been started off in what was quite a low church Baptist um, uh, setting, and moving to a Church of England one, I rediscovered um, it, it countered some of my prejudices. I used to think, I think when I was a Baptist, oh well, Church of England just set prayers, just reading out the same thing, no room for the Spirit. How boring must that be? And then I, I got there and discovered the beauty of liturgy. I discovered the importance for me of a Eucharistically shaped faith, of hearing God speak, uh, not only in the Bible and in prayers, which I discovered as a Baptist, but also uh, in Holy Communion, in bread and wine, in um, the Psalms, in you know, in the joy of liturgy, and you know, so much of the CV liturgy, you hear the Psalms come back time and again be that in daily mm. prayer or in the set Sunday readings, uh, the beauty and the depth of the Psalms, not only just in terms of joy, but also in times of challenge and anguish. And when my faith deepened in a way that I uh, wasn't expecting in uh, any way. And it was a joy to discover more of the Lord uh, in that way uh, and through that worship. And it was a few years later when I actually... I'd left my job as a lawyer and uh, started working for the Church of England doing communications for the Diocese of Birmingham. Mm -hmm. That I, um, that a few people who I respected and trusted said, um, Have you ever thought about being a vicar? And uh, mm. I uh, hadn't. And on their prompting, I put myself forward for uh, the process, the ordination process. And uh, had a kind of one-time deal with God because I was really enjoying the work that I did uh, doing communications in Birmingham. And I was like, Lord, I'll be obedient. I'll do it. But if it's a no, I've got a really good plan B. All worked out here. <laughs> uh, but it was uh, it was a yes. And, um, and yeah, I, um, I was surprised by it, I think, as uh, many others. And... Uh, I didn't naturally see myself as a, a priest in the Church of England. I'd never seen another Asian man 
uh, as a priest, uh, never been to a service. I think I'd been, Ruth, I think I'd been in the Church of England, I think it was 30 years before I saw another Asian man either preside at communion or preach who was a Church of England vicar. And, you know, I'd served in Birmingham, in London. All right, more acceptable when you think, you know, I did my curacy in Harrogate. I did five years in Durham. You know, perhaps not such a surprise, given the demographics <laughs> there. But, you know, I served in Birmingham, in Wolverhampton. I worked in London for five years. And I'd never experienced that. So being a, a vicar in the CV wasn't um, a natural progression. I think, you know, when we hear that phrase quite naturally, that you've got to see it to be it. If you don't see it, it's all that more difficult, I think, to imagine yourself in. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Your wife is ordained as well, isn't she? Yeah, uh, I met uh, my wife, Jo, uh, at Vicar School at Cranmer Hall in Durham. She's a couple of years ahead of me. Uh, so uh, she was just starting her third year. I was just starting my first. And uh, it was a real uh, surprise and joy uh, to meet Jo. And now we have uh, a wonderful, beautiful daughter too. And so Jo did her curacy. Uh, ahead of me in um, in the diocese of the then diocese of Ripon and Leeds, where we find ourselves again, and she's a theological educator. She teaches. She now trains others to be uh, licensed lay ministers and vicars, and teaches biblical studies amongst other things. So, um, yeah, uh, I followed her, as it were, to uh, North Yorkshire, then uh, where she had her curacy and where I uh, then followed as we were married. What a team, what a team. Well, as I say, you've written the Archbishop of York's Advent book, Stick With Love. Why do you think Stephen Cottrell wanted you to write this year's book? I think um, one of the things about Stephen is that he has a, a strong commitment to racial justice. And this book is really rooted in two particular uh, biblical images. Uh, one from uh, Revelation 7, uh, that standing before the throne of God, people of uh, tribes of every tongue and nation, and the, the subtitle of the book, as it were, Rejoicing in Every Tongue, Every Tribe, Every Nation, is a nod to that image of people from all nations and all tongues standing before uh, the throne of God, because that's who we are as a church. Uh, we are uh, universal, both uh, global and through time, uh, that we uh, join together with all the saints before the throne of God. And that wonderful vision is um, really uh, a reinforcement of what we know, uh, that uh, the church is uh, universal, global, uh, Catholic in the small sea sense. And there are times when we restrict that through our own behaviours, uh, through our own views. And in some ways, the subtext of the book is to say that when you uh, consider all the saints in the church, and by that, uh, I mean in the biblical Pauline sense of saints, not just uh, those uh, holy women and men who we commemorate, um, 
we recognise that uh, the church uh, is uh, a body that has many tongues, that um, is joyously universal. That uh, that image of the church, which we might restrict, particularly say in C of E terms, to some kind of rural, uh, a bit of Saxon building on a rural common, um, uh, that whole John Major, uh, I think, uh, line of a, a, an old woman uh, cycling to Evensong in her village, that the church is so much more than that. And I think that Stephen's vision and view of the church, particularly around racial justice, both in nations and of nations, so within our nation, uh, as well as across others, and that's something that he's been committed to throughout his ministry. And so that picture from Revelation and also uh, from Isaiah, when uh, God speaking of all nations coming to the holy hill, to his holy hill, where all nations would be found. Uh, those two biblical images reinforce that sense, uh, I think, of who we are as Christian women and men and as a body. So those are the biblical visions that uh, the book is rooted in. And then the book itself, uh, daily devotions, uh, considering individual women and men, uh, Christian women and men, whose stories are stories of hope, even in times of suffering, um, providing uh, stories of hope in the midst of challenge. And I think, Ruth, you know, as we look around the world now, um, stories of hope are things that we could really do with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're going to be looking at some of those stories of hope in a later episode. But would you just say, what is Advent? If someone has no idea what Advent is, and crucially, why is it significant, do you think, Karen? I think Advent's a time of preparation on two different uh, ways. Firstly, it's a preparation for uh, the coming of the light into the world, uh, for Christmas for the birth of Jesus, for God uh, taking on human flesh and entering human history. And so it's a spiritual uh, preparation for that. Um, it's also, in some ways, a time to think of the last thing, uh, a time for a spiritual MOT. There are kind of echoes, really, between Lent and Advent. Uh, just as in Lent we prepare for Easter, uh, so in Advent, we prepare for Christmas. And so there are traditions of um, considering Advent as a time of uh, judgment, of hell, of heaven, and almost doing a spiritual MOT to say, where am I with God in my journey? Um, to remember uh, that line, ironically, from Lent, that we are but dust and to dust we shall return. But we prepare for that in the light of Christ during Advent, in the knowledge of the coming of the light into the world, just as at Lent we do it in the knowledge of the resurrection uh, to come. So there is that sense of uh, preparation. Of course, in the wider world, Ruth, uh, Advent um, is uh, calendars. Simply, it's a build-up to Christmas, which specifically the chocolate world, ones. <laughs> so, well, and it's amazing. I, I mentioned in the book the number of different types of Advent calendars you can get now. I think we've had in this house, we've had chocolate ones before. We've had for my daughter lip balms, 
a different lip balm every day <laughs> through uh, Advent. Uh, and someone wants... Who doesn't need 24 lip balms? Who, exactly. Particularly during December. And uh, I think someone once bought me one that was pork scratchings, which I know is not everyone's Ooh. taste and flavour. Uh, but uh, but part of that in the secular world, I mean, yeah, Christmas, we're, here we are, you know, in November, and um, Marks and Spencers have just released their Christmas campaign. I'm sure John Lewis is and all this and all those of it. You know, um, Christmas for commerce begins in November and is about the build-up to spending. For Christians, Advent begins uh, in that first week of December and is a turning in our hearts, in our rhythms, in our focus towards the coming of Christ into the world. And you quote Walter Brueggemann, who says that Christians are in-betweeners. Um, what do you think he meant by that? And what significance does that have to Advent and, I suppose, looking forward to Christmas? And Walter Brueggemann used that phrase I mean, in, specifically in relation to Easter and Lent. And I think his, um, uh, his sense was that for those first disciples, what did it feel like on that uh, day after Good Friday, on the Saturday, where they were living between the reality of the crucifixion and the promise of the resurrection? And there is a sense for us that we do the same now. Uh, I think Tom Wright uh, does a similar thing when he talks about uh, Christian life lived out as a five-act play where uh, we are now living between the fourth and the fifth act, between uh, Jesus' uh, life, death and resurrection, and that time when he will come again. And we live in that time now. And so that in-between, the sense of uh, living in-between events, because we, um, we know where the story ends. We know that we live as part of God's story and his relationship with his creation, of which uh, we are part. And that salvation history, uh, we know that it ends with the return of Christ, with the coming of the King uh, into the world, with that time of judgment, um, when that picture from Revelation, when all will be gathered uh, before the throne of God, and really that that's uh, what we yearn for, for the fulfilling of God's promise. And um, we live with the sure and certain hope of that promise to come. And and finally, what does Christmas mean to you personally? And do you have any sort of special Christmas traditions in the Aurora family? Do you know yet how you're going to be celebrating Christmas together? <laughs> uh, not yet. I mean, it was funny growing up um, because I didn't grow up in a Christian family. Uh, Christmas was still marked not religiously, it had to be said, uh, but we uh, derived our own kind of uh, rituals. Uh, so back then, uh, back in the 70s, when there were three channels on telly, uh, you know, the Queen at 3pm always used to be a big thing, followed by the James Bond film uh, that would come on ITV uh, after the Queen, and that would be the centrepiece of Christmas. Uh, my mom and dad... Um, we ran a family business, so Christmas was one of the few times when you get two days off in a row. Uh, otherwise, 
every day was a work day, even Sundays, replenishing stock. Um, and Sunday, you know, was quieter in, in the house and meant a line for my mum and dad. Uh, but actually getting two days off in a row was unheard of. So in Christmas, really, uh, Christmas perhaps uh, in Easter, Easter Sunday, Bank Holiday Monday, that that was special uh, in that way. For me now, of course, um, the church, especially I think midnight, uh, midnight communion, midnight mass, there is something wonderfully, beautifully special uh, about that service and about ushering in um, Christmas with communion uh, and then getting home. And of course, uh, for those who uh, are ministers and who take such services, straight after that comes the 8am service on Christmas Day. So uh, that can be a a kind of tough night leading to a bit of a snooze after Christmas lunch. Uh, uh, This year, um, I'll be marking Christmas uh, by doing a service in prison in Leith, uh, which will be a real privilege to do that, to do a communion service uh, here with the men in Leith prison and to be doing that with them. And uh, that will be the main service of the day for me. And then uh, afterwards, probably travelling down to Birmingham to spend it with uh, my mom, my brother. And uh, that's where we're going this year. Oh, brilliant. Well, when it gets there, I hope you have a wonderful time and a happy Christmas. <laughs> and also with you, Ruth, also with you. Thank you for listening to Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson. And as always, you can find out more about our guests through the links with today's show. We would love to hear your feedback. Do drop us an email with your thoughts at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or get in touch via social media. And don't forget, there are more shows, articles and resources at our website, premierunbelievable.com. You can also register there for the chance to win a free book. That's premierunbelievable.com. And if you enjoy listening to Unapologetic, please do consider rating and reviewing it. Thank you for listening and see you next time. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com.